there is just a vast difference in like how we should work towards meaningful change. And this can only occur when groups who are most impacted are leading the discussions and the actions as well. Representation ensures that women's voices are heard in terms of like different experiences and different ways of mitigating and adapting as well in, and including marginalised voices. From ASEAN to Australia, it's ASIP On Air, the show where we amplify young voices, explore diverse perspectives and deepen conversations on key issues across Australia and Southeast Asia. This episode, Mia Dunphy and Isadora Vadas joins us from Australia as we discuss gendered climate action, women as agents of change, and what Australia can take from ASEAN states in addressing the gender and climate nexus. Thank you, Isadora and Mia, for joining me on this episode. Before I get into any of the questions, can both of you give me a brief overview on the piece? Hi, yes, sure. I can start with a brief overview. So our piece is called Addressing Gender Within the Climate Crisis, How Australia Can Learn from ASEAN's Multi-Level Approach. And we start with the premise that climate change is not gender blind and that the effects of climate change impact people of different genders differently, but that intersectionality also needs to be considered in the context of climate change as well in terms of the fact that intersecting marginalisations have an impact on how someone experiences climate change. So we look at multi-leveled approaches to addressing the gender climate nexus across ASEAN and in Australia in terms of uh, what grassroots initiatives are happening and where that is being met by national or state level policy. And we argue that though action is taking place across all levels across ASEAN and Australia, Australia has more to learn from ASEAN's approach in that the gender climate nexus is not directly addressed by the federal government here and that Australia could learn from countries like Cambodia and the Philippines who are leading the way in that respect. Yeah, it was a great piece to write together with Isidora and like um, I feel like we both learned so much about the different initiatives that are happening in all these different countries and so it was re- it was really great on that part and like for me in particular I guess it like really entwines with what I'm currently working on like I'm doing my PhD looking at gender and generational forest changes in Borneo in Indonesia and so I mean looking at the intersectionality and um, my frameworks through uh, feminist political ecology. And so kind of look diving into these different um, aspects of the gendered issues around climate change and climate action has been really, really important for the work that I'm currently working in. So it's been a really great experience, actually. It was good to come together and write it with Mia as well, because I kind of have not much experience at a grassroots level, but I have a legal background, so could kind of bring maybe the more policy-based side of it, um, of our article. So I think we, yeah, our skills complemented each other's really well. Yeah, definitely. No, it was so good because we kind of were both on the same page and, um, and then we when we first kind of had our first meeting and then we were like, oh, well, I'm kind of interested in the grassroots area. And, and Isadora was like, oh, I'm kind of interested in the policy kind of uh, macro thing. And we were like, oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was great. 
it's mm. it's really good to always you know collaborate with another person who has expertise in a different field. I think I've even mm. had that experience myself with writing articles and things like that. So it's really nice to actually read a piece such as this that actually addresses an issue that is so important, but has I feel been centered a lot more on sort of Western nations. So it's really nice to see Southeast Asians put at the front of your article. So I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. So in the piece, you highlight that women in particular who belong to a lower socioeconomic group are more susceptible to the effects of climate change. Would you be able to elaborate on that correlation of individual economic stability to the impact of climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think climate change impacts is really multi-layered and complex and so it doesn't impact everyone the same so our article kind of argues that poorer women especially women of color and or indigenous women are disproportionately impacted by climate change and climate change impacts that like exacerbate existing inequalities as intensifying natural disasters and changing of ecologies and sea level rising like impact livelihoods and resources So in terms of the lower socioeconomic groups, climate change and poverty are like really intertwined. And so people in a lower socioeconomic groups are significantly more likely to experience the impacts of climate change compared to those in higher economic groups, just because they have less financial capital, um, such as, you know, not being able to buy products or that can't move out of or relocate as easier. And within the household as well, especially in developing countries, women are often in the informal employment as well as kind of the agricultural sectors as well. So in kind of agrarian settings. And 70% of the 1.3 billion people living in conditions of poverty are women and predominantly Yeah, exactly. And they predominantly produce the world's food, but they own less than 10% of land. So I think there's just like, there's a huge correlation and it's just full on when you read about it. And I think that's what we found through this article. Isadora, would you, would you agree? Did you want to add anything? Oh, no, I definitely agree with everything that you said. I think when we were writing the article, we were trying to highlight that it's not particularly useful to always speak about women as one sort of cohort mm-hmm. because women are so varied across the world and in ASEAN and Australia in particular. And so it's hard to sort of talk about that group under the one umbrella. And so if in ASEAN and Australia we live in patriarchal societies, that sort of marginalisation also exists or can exist against a backdrop of poverty or low income, as Mia described often in Mm -hmm. agrarian settings. And so we wanted to highlight that access to use of and control over land, water, forests and other natural resources is not something that women have been traditionally privy to in ASEAN or in Australia. And so that obviously needs to be considered in the context of climate change policy or community action. But also we didn't want to make it all seem like doom and gloom because we, yeah, it's also important to recognise that women, um, especially women from low-income backgrounds, are doing it like they are the force of like enormous change across the region. And yeah, we looked at a lot of instances in which women are coming together to, to create really positive, positive change in this space. Yeah, that's really interesting. An example that I was thinking about that's not really ASEAN or Australia related is uh, what's been happening in Puerto Rico. They've had a lot of issues with natural disasters and had a very sort of rich agricultural economy. And, you know, whenever they were sort of hit with natural disasters, a lot of the 
land was sort of ruined and things like that. And a lot of women were affected as well. So it's interesting to see that now that they're on the stage of recovery, a lot of uh, grassroots groups, like the ones that uh, the both of you have mentioned in your piece, are actually helping build society again in Puerto Rico. So yeah, I just thought that was an interesting thing that popped in my head as the both of you were talking just then. Yeah, it's, it's really cool to see it happening in so many places that climate mitigation or adaptation can be used as a vehicle to drive gender equality or the other way around as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, definitely. And often like these organisations as well, like the, especially the grassroots and women run and led and women focused as well, like they're always kind of put to the side. There hasn't been much focus on them, especially in kind of rural areas or, or developing countries. So I think that was something that I was really excited to kind of dive into in this piece as well, just to look at some different examples of, of amazing work that's going on in the region. So as I was reading your piece, a lot of what was written, I thought, alluded to the feminist climate renaissance, which was a term that was coined by Johnson and Wilkinson. Is there a possibility that nations in Southeast Asia would be able to reach the goal of the renaissance, especially with the efforts of Serikat Perempuan Indonesia or the Indonesian Women's Organization, Vietnamese Women's Union and other groups in the region? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you raised this, the feminist climate renaissance, because Mm. looking into it a little bit more, I definitely see what you mean about there being a lot of crossover between the ideas, because I think we're trying to highlight that the root of climate change and gender equality sort of have similar origins Mm-hmm. in that both are linked extensively to capitalism and the history of colonial or neo-colonial systems that we've seen throughout history and currently, which are also related to racism, white supremacy and patriarchy. I'm not sure if I can directly answer your question. I think it would be obviously incredible to be able to address a lot of those issues that we're facing to create like a a feminist climate renaissance, as you say. I think um, in Southeast Asian countries, I think obviously that would be an amazing outcome. Um, I I know in a lot of Southeast Asian countries, there's still a long way to go on the path to gender equality. For sure. And at the same time, yeah, at the same time, achieving sustainability can be quite difficult because of the emphasis on development and developing quickly and being able to achieve that when obviously a lot of other parts of the world have developed through quite carbon heavy, emissions heavy industry. And so I think capitalism and gender inequality are are both still significant issues that people are, that societies are facing. But at the same time, gender inequality is more of an inevitability at this point. It will just take a little bit longer for some countries to get there. And we're all still on that path. But I know that there are lots of people all over ASEAN who are working to achieve gender equality and environmental sustainability. So I'm sure it will be possible to achieve something like a feminist climate renaissance. And I'm sure it will be different in every country because every country is, is completely unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I similarly to Isadora was looking into it a lot more and I think it's like really crucial and I was really interested to dive a bit deeper into the different issues that they touch on in in the feminist climate renaissance. And like Isadora said, a lot of what we spoke about in our piece is exploring the whole climate change narrative currently and throughout history as well as being policies and actions surrounding climate change have been led and centred around white men predominantly from 
the global north. And so by like their core frameworks, they talk a lot about power and joy and the examples that we provide and dive into in our in our paper like shows that women-led and focused groups achieve such incredible things. And I think that similarly to what Isidora was saying, it's so difficult to answer that question, but it is a really important question because that's the goal. But because there's all these different nations and communities and even like different villages or different cities or different households, like they're all so different and it is possible to reach this feminist climate renaissance. But from my perspective, like it would have to be such a grassroots goal where they wouldn't like one goal that everyone tried to get to the same goal, but it would just look really different in every community because women are doing the majority of the work and each organization or each community or each country or whatever, they've got different understandings of what feminist climate renaissance might look like for them and what that means to them in terms of how equality looks or in the climate movement as well. Yeah, thank you for that. I do realize that it wasn't, you know, the easiest question to answer. And I don't think you know, we will have a concrete answer on it in a few years, so, which is unfortunate, but that's the sad reality of it, really. But I think with the feminist uh, climate renaissance, like both of you mentioned, it's going to be quite difficult to achieve in Southeast Asia, just because not only are there differing levels of economic growth and development in each, in each of these countries, and in a lot of them, capitalism is still one of the focus for development. And that obviously has a big toll on the feminist movement and climate change. Some countries might be able to get there sooner than others just because of how their economic structure is, really. Southeast Asian culture has historically been known to be rooted in patriarchy, uh, with the clear lack of women being represented in politics, as alluded to in the piece. How might more female representation in politics allow women to be less impacted by the effects of climate change? And how might the respective societies in the various Southeast Asian countries be able to overcome its roots in patriarchy? I would say that patriarchy is like rooted throughout most societies Mm. in Australia as well. Like we live in such a patriarchal system that's Mm. also based on the oppression of Indigenous communities, people of colour, like different abilities, sexuality. And so, yeah, Southeast Asia is similarly kind of rooted in that, in that, that patriarchy. And, and I would definitely argue that representation like matters a lot, especially in kind of like the political space. And we did touch on that in our article. And I like Isadora, I know this is kind of your area in terms of like the macro stuff as well. But I think in, in Southeast Asia, on average, like 20% of parliamentary seats were held by women. And Australia, you know, we rank at I think 31%, but we're like, you know, 50th Mm. in the world for women representation. Like that's like pretty, that's really bad as well. (laughs) So for action in terms of like climate change, for example, like and having a gender balanced and, and representation is really important to create meaningful change. Representation ensures that women's voices are heard in terms of like different experiences and different ways of mitigating and adapting as well in and including marginalized voices. Our article, I don't know, we tried to capture the way in which ASEAN states and Australia, we have to include women's voices through an intersectional lens. And that's ensuring that like all identities and groups are heard and represented. So in terms of climate action, this is really crucial because 
there is just a vast difference in in terms of experience and and in terms of like how we should work towards meaningful change. And this can only occur when groups who are most impacted are leading the discussions and the actions as well. Uh, Yeah, I completely agree with everything that Maya said, that you can't have effective policy without understanding the experiences or including the voices of this diversity of people that the policies will affect. I also think that patriarchy often assumes a universal understanding of experience. So Mm -hmm. it kind of eliminates others' points of view because it assumes that they understand that there's sort of like a, a universal experience, which we know not to be true. And so not only is it right and fair that women or people of all genders should be included in systems of representative government because, you know, women make up more than 50% of people in most countries. But yeah, it obviously hinders the effectiveness of policies by not understanding and integrating those experiences. In terms of the second part of your question, which is how can we overcome patriarchy in Southeast Asia? I'm not sure if I feel completely qualified to be able to answer that. I wish I had the answer. But I think something that's important to me is uh, that we use education to be able to educate young people and children to understand that they don't have to conform to gender stereotypes. That's probably one of the most effective ways we'll be able to overcome the roots of patriarchy in succeeding generations. Yeah, I mean, I'm originally from Malaysia. So Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, on a personal level, I can speak to that. You know, education is definitely needed to give precedence to gender issues and things like that, because in a lot of cases, it does go, you know, back of heads of people and it's not really talked about. So even just talking about it in households would change how people approach these things and would hopefully drive a change in policies. But then I also see like in Australia, because I live in Australia now, you know, Australia has had a female prime minister and... You know, she was in and out of office, like in a blink of an eye. And I don't think a lot of policies changed. I mean, some policies did change, but there's a lot more work to be done. And Mm -hmm. that was also too in the piece as well. For me, it's just whilst representation is definitely important, policies and actual driven policies need to be enacted to match that representation as well. And, you know, there's definitely a need to push in that direction, not only in Australia, but in Southeast Asia and other countries as well, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what we were, like, that was our ultimate argument, I think, in the, in the piece is that both or all levels of change are needed and it's not going to be completely effective if it's not occurring at all levels. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, definitely. They work really well together to create meaningful change on all levels. So like to just have grassroots action, like that is so significant in so many ways. It doesn't necessarily change the broader discussions in the global sense or the regional sense. And similarly, like if it's just action on the, the national or regional agenda, it might not necessarily trickle down to grassroots action as well. So I think it's so important to have really meaningful action and change going on at all levels to ensure that firstly, like the voices have been heard but also just that actual um yeah meaningful change that is occurring and it's gonna it's gonna actually do good for each community in the piece there were case studies looking at indonesia cambodia vietnam and australia were there any other countries in southeast asia that have addressed gender within the lens of climate change that you know you think would be important to highlight as well 
I think there's just efforts being made all over Southeast Asia and similarly like on in the grassroots level in the regional level and sorry the national level and the regional level that to mainstream gender within the climate response and obviously our article only explores a couple of those examples to highlight some of the responses that are occurring but there are probably tens of hundreds of local grassroots women's organizations working across ASEAN and similarly in Australia to bring about this meaningful change in the climate space so I think that was such a difficult thing to kind of pick which ones we were going to dive into Isidori, you've got something. Yeah, and I've got an example. Um, there were lots of examples of projects that were happening at a grassroots level that we wanted to speak about, but obviously we couldn't talk about all mm. of them. One really cool example, it was in the Philippines and it was a collaboration between ActionAid Australia and an organisation called PKKK, which worked with over 6,000 people across three regions of the Philippines to build resilience for vulnerable women and ensuring that women's rights are protected in, in emergencies. So they were helping to educate women about reducing the risk of violence in emergencies and ensuring that communities are better prepared to respond to future disasters and placing women's needs and voices at the centre. So it wasn't so much about sustainability, but it, it was um, it focused primarily on disaster response and preparedness, acknowledging that gendered violence often increases at times of disaster and in the aftermath. And it, I think they collaborated with an organisation which was like a peak body of women's organisations called Women in Emergency Network, which I think sounds like an amazing idea. And they were going and they worked across different regions to promote women's rights and build resilience to, to disasters, whilst also focusing on empowerment, solidarity and local and national advocacy on women's rights and resilience. So I thought that, that was quite a good example of what we were talking about in our piece. It really ties together very nicely women's empowerment and and reducing risks that women face in the aftermath of disasters, which will become more and more common as climate change worsens over the years. Another one that I came across today actually was the Myanmar Climate Change Alliance, which undertook the country's first ever gender-sensitive climate vulnerability assessment. I'm not really sure what would be happening on this front after the coup in February, but I really hope it doesn't limit what people are able to achieve in terms of gender equality or addressing climate change. But the alliance worked to consider gender through the assessment and develop the Myanmar Climate Change Strategy and Master Plan, which included a gender element, which we said we discussed in our piece as being another really important part of addressing the gender and climate change nexus at a policy level. So they're just two examples from the, reason, from the region, but there are so many more and there, there are so many people doing such incredible work on the ground throughout the ASEAN region. And I think that what's something that's really interesting and you kind of touched on a bit, Isidore, was like how especially now and like, um, and I reckon increasingly so, like there are organisations that have been set up, for example, women's group that don't necessarily focus on climate change or climate groups that don't necessarily focus on gender equality. But as we're kind of moving into, or there's been more kind of research done and, and there's a movement that is occurring around gender mainstreaming and in, in the climate movement. And as we move into 2020, whatever, 2021, <laughs> what, what year are we in? <laughs> <laughs> there's um, much more of like an, a connection between the two that's occurring. And I think that even there is a lot of organisations interlocking the two different issues 
as they move forward with their organizations, which I think is really interesting and really important to kind of not just focus on one. I mean, they're all very important by themselves as well, but having that kind of intersectional approach and realizing that there's all these different things going on, I think is really important. And we've found that in quite a lot of research that we did. It sounds so interesting. And the one in the Philippines I'd never heard of definitely be very informative and also uh, bring attention to a lot of the efforts that have already been done. Um, Because I don't think it's being publicized as much as we hope to think it is really. If there's anything else you'd like to add, feel free to Um. do I just wanted to say how thankful I am really and to Mm. thank Isadora as well. Like we didn't know each other before writing this piece and it's just been so great to work with you and and great to be involved in the, the whole project as well. Yeah, for me as well. It's been really fun and great to see the other work the other contributors have produced to go towards the review. And yeah, it's been really great to work with you, Mia. We should definitely catch up again soon. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of ASIP On Air, special edition on the ASIP Review 2020. Get your copy of the ASEAN Australia Review at ASIP.org and follow us on all social media and subscribe to ASIP On Air on Spotify to catch our weekly episodes.